Did you have a coffee? <laughs> a cup of coffee? Yeah, no, I had, that's the problem. I had coffee, and uh, I'm a little wired right now. Um, but we're, we're going to go ahead and get started here. How about let's get started with a word of prayer. Um, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, creator and, and redeemer, you have power over um, you have power over the demons and over all of creation so that even the winds and waves obey you give us faith to to leave everything behind to follow you in the way of suffering as you feed us as you feed us along the way with your very body and blood. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Um, so we are in session 15, Living Sacrifices. Uh, it's kind of seems like a long study, but we're, we can actually get through this pretty quickly without rushing, right? And some of these things kind of We'll have more discussion on certain questions than others because they're a little subjective and we kind of like to hear what people have to say about it. But uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, this, this, this one is, um, the focus is that in view of God's, in view of God's, God's mercies, Christians offer their lives in service and even in sacrifice, right? Um, let's go ahead and have somebody start off with those first two short paragraphs before we get to that first question. Who wants to read those for us? Anybody? Now that Paul was thoroughly discussed, <laughs> has thoroughly discussed relationship of Jews and Gentiles with God, he turns to the practical issues of how Jewish believers and Gentile believers relate to one another. Once again, he introduces a pattern from the Old Testament and with a New Testament application sacrifice. At the time of the patriarchs, people offered sacrifices to that to thank God for blessings for his blessings or to participate in a fellowship meal with God and his people. Later sacrifices focused on atonement. They were offered to cover up the signs of the people. Cover up the sins of the people. Sins of the yeah. people. Their signs would be another thing. <laughs> yeah, okay, so let's read Romans 7, verses 7 through 11. Let's, let's uh, uh, get, get some of these texts taken care of here. Who wants, who wants to read Romans 7, 7 through 11? Uh, do I have a taker on that one? Paul? Do I have someone to read Galatians 3.18? Anybody want to read Galatians 3.18? We'll do it. Okay, still. And then Romans 4, 9 through 16. Who wants to read Romans 4, 9 through 16? Peggy? Alright. And then Hebrews 11.4. Who wants Hebrews 11.4? It's only one verse. Come on. Okay, I will if I can find Hebrews. Okay. Hebrew, okay, so we got everybody for these readings. So, uh, Romans 7, 
7 through 11. Uh, let's read that, which describes the effects of the Mosaic law. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded, my, afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to light, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Okay. Now let's let's see Galatians three eighteen. Okay. For the inheritance comes by the law, and no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Okay. So the inheritance is of the law. If the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, right? Mm -hmm. Now let's uh, take a look at Romans four. 9 through 16. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? <clears throat> we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received a sign of the circumcision, a seal of this righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offsprings received the promise that he would be heir to, of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offsprings, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. All right. And then last, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 4. Uh, <clears throat> by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was com commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. Hmm. Okay, so... By faith. Yeah, by faith. That's right. If uh, 
If um, Benita Clark were here, she would be loving this right now. She's always by faith, by faith, by faith. I'm just like, that's right, Benita. That's right. Um, so based on Paul's response to the law, what drove the Old Testament sacrificial system of atonement? So with the Old Testament sacrificial system, what was the driving force? What was the need? Circumcision. Well, okay, so, so that's circumcision. But as far as the sacrifices that were made, like when they would have to offer the bulls and the lambs and things like that, why would they need to do... Why would they need to make sacrifices according to the Mosaic law? That is the law that was given through Moses. Yeah, why did he command it though? What was what was the point of all these sacrifices? The blood was thrown on the altar. Mm-hmm. Point to Jesus. Right. To foreshadow the sacrifice made by Jesus, because what would Jesus' sacrifice do? Fulfill the law. Right. It would make atonement, right? Kind of like what we began this with saying that, you know, that in the time of the patriarchs, the sacrifices made were to thank God for his blessings or to participate in a uh, meal of fellowship with God and his people. Later on in the Mosaic law, the sacrifices focused on covering up the sins of the people, right? The, 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 the sacrifices and the blood were for the atonement of sin, right? So that means that what comes with sin according to the law. When, when the law points out sin, what is the intended purpose? How are you supposed to feel when, you're point, when the law points to your sin? Bad. Yeah. Remorseful. Remorseful, guilty, right? And so you have this guilt driving this sacrificial system. You want to get rid of your guilt, you want to say, I have done wrong in God's sight. What can be done for this, right? And so guilt drove the sacrificial system, which began with the law given through Moses, right? Before that uh, system of sacrifice began, the patriarchs lived by faith in the promise, right? Like what it tells about in uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse 4, that Abel offered up a better sacrifice than that of Cain, right? By faith. It wasn't by guilt, but it was by faith. So what 11 verse 4 says, uh, in, uh, it says, by faith, uh, by faith, um, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was Righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. So, kind of see that there was kind of a shift there with the Mosaic Law. So, therefore, anybody still trying to adhere to the Mosaic Law as if that would save you, it's just, it's not understanding that faith is paramount, right? Faith is what really matters uh, with all these things. Does that make sense? Um, that uh, even in the sacrificial system, there was, the, there was supposed to be the element of faith, right? That God has a promise, and he has said, um, it sounds kind of strange to us maybe, uh, or at least it sounds a little strange to me, it's kind of hard to reconcile it where 
we like to always say that God has said, here's my promise. I have promised this and I will fulfill it. And yet when you look at the sacrificial system given through Moses, that system looks a lot like the people doing certain things and then God blesses them, right? It kind of looks like all the other pagan sacrificial systems, if you know what I'm saying, where they would they would go to Baal or uh, to Asherah or Moloch, and they would make these sacrifices so that that God would smile upon them. And that can, that can, we can look at the sacrificial system in the Mosaic law and say, isn't that the same thing? But it's really not the same thing because as we learned in Hebrews, and as Tim said, those sacrifices were to point to the sacrifice to be made in Christ, right? That, um, that God attached his promise to these actions in saying, um, in saying to them, I will bless you because you do these things, but not because you're so great, but because my promise is so great. It's still a focus on the promise. It's still a focus on holding on to what God has promised in these things. So that's a bit of a nuanced view of it, but it helps us to see that it's not the same as the pagan sacrifices. Maybe it though, because it can be confusing on that level, it's understandable why the Israelites didn't really see a problem with going after the other gods and sacrificing to them just so they could hedge their bets, right? It's like, well, we're sacrificing to Yahweh, and it seems to us that when we make these sacrifices, he's happy. So why not go ahead and do that with Baal and with all these other gods and just kind of just, just be on the safe side, as it were, in, in their thinking. Does that make sense? I just wonder how long it took them after Jesus rose from the dead. How long did it take the Israelites to get it? Some never did. I mean, did they continue to, to do the... Yes, they did. They, giving sacrifices? Yes, they did. They continued I mean, I'm sure to... the apostles probably, after Pentecost, you know, the apostles went out and started spreading the good news. And I guess, you know, they told them they didn't need to do that anymore. Yeah. But I suppose a lot of them continued to do it. Because the, ignorance, if nothing else. Ignorance, willful ignorance in a lot of ways, uh, because Acts is full of the uh, accounts of the apostles testifying to the sacrifice of Christ, you know, and, and the, the implication is there that Christ is the new temple, the church is the new Zion, as it were, and it's a good thing to hold on to the temple, it's a good thing to hold on to these things of heritage that we've been given, but things are different now. And they were still hashing out what that really meant. Right, I'm sure. But you'll see in the historical records of like Josephus um, uh, in when, when, when Rome came and uh, destroyed Israel in 70 AD and destroyed the temple. Well, they sacked Israel and destroyed the temple. The priests in the temple had a sacrifice. Like, when Israel fell under the Romans for good, 
it was during Passover. So, and that's what made that siege and that and that uh, battle, that war, so horrible, is because Israel, because because Jerusalem, sorry, Jerusalem fell. Jerusalem was so full of these pilgrims coming in from all over the world, still coming in for the temple sacrifices. And they were kind of trapped in the city. And so the priests in the temple were still making these sacrifices. And the day before the Romans finally broke through and defeated uh, the resistance forces in Jerusalem, they had a sacrifice. It was the last sacrifice they ever had there. And then, and, and then the Romans came and they sacrificed to their pagan gods and then they destroyed the temple. Actually, the temple was destroyed because the Romans were so mad at, at the Hebrews, at, at the Jews. They were so mad at them, they, they looted the temple and they burned it down and destroyed it. And then after the fire was out, then the Romans sacrificed to their pagan gods on that spot. You know, so it's very kind of, so they kept on sacrificing. They kept on doing. They had an established uh, system that they were still holding on to, which is probably what Paul is railing against. And the writer of Hebrews, which I think is Saint Paul, is railing against the temple, saying that that temple is still holding on to the foreshadowing that has already come in Jesus. Right. So. Um, Paul is trying to be persuasive and saying, you don't need to worry about those things because those things have already been fulfilled. Because I'm sure the draw was still there for the Jews to say, well, we make this pilgrimage every year to Jerusalem for Passover. We got to still do it. Keep on doing it. And he's like, and, and he says, you don't need to anymore. It's been done. Christ, right? So now, um, when Paul talks about sacrifice, uh, let's go on to that next question. According to Romans 12, verse 1, uh, how is Paul's call to sacrifice vastly different from what was practiced in the Old Testament? He talks about a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Yeah, so... Yeah, so he says a living sacrifice because what was the sacrifice in the Old Testament? Was it a living sacrifice? Yeah, yeah they killed the, the lamb or the bull, you know, or the goat uh, or the doves, depending on what the sacrifice was for, right, according to the law. So in the Old Testament, people offered the animals by slaughtering them, but Paul calls the Romans to offer themselves... As, as a sacrifice that is alive, right? It's a little different. Uh, sounds kind of, he's, he's, we're going to get into kind of what he means because he says, um, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, right? Not the guilt, but the mercies of God. So we see that, um, a, you know, scan chapters 9 through 11. We're not going to really do that, but, um, I mean, hopefully you did that beforehand, right? And we already talked about 9 through 11 last week, right? Uh, where we talked about um, adoption as sons, right? That the Heavenly Father has chosen and saved both Jews and Gentiles by grace through faith. So, and throughout that, 
throughout chapters 9 through 11 in God showing his 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 mercy when we look at 12 verse 1 what mercies does Paul have in view here so when he says by the mercies of God I beseech you what does he mean by the mercies yeah, the forgiveness. What did we talk about last week? Um, uh, when we see even the title of last week's session, Adoption as Sons, right? That he has adopted us as his children, right? What else is there? If you kind of just take a peek at Romans 9 through 11, you kind of maybe read like if you have the section headings baptized into Christ. right yeah bap baptized into Christ that is part of the adoption as 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 God's sons um, what else do y'all see maybe that even though uh, those who are of the flesh as a descendant, um, those who are a descendant of Abraham according to the flesh, even though they rejected the gospel, God still pursues them, right? He still wants that covenant to be for them. That's merciful, right? He doesn't count them all. He doesn't just, he doesn't just write them off as just lost forever, right? So even, even a covenant with God uh, especially as we have in the new covenant with Christ, that's that's merciful because that includes the forgiveness of sins, right? So the mercies, I think, just just to kind of point to a few of them here, you know, the the adoption of Israel as sons, both Jews and Gentiles, the covenants of grace, right? Uh, the law that actually points us to the wonderful aspects of the gospel. Right? The law is a mercy in the sense that it points to who we truly are so that we can know truly what Christ has done. Right? Um, let me see. Submission to the authorities. Submission to the authorities? Uh -huh. Is that in chapters 9 through 11? Uh-uh. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's in 13, right? 13, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're... Trying to look Go mainly back. at okay. uh, right. uh, nine nine through eleven, but I mean, yeah, further, Karen. yeah, you're <laughs> jumping ahead. We'll get to that for sure, definitely. That's part of the study. Um, but yeah, so you see, like the temple, the promises, right? God's promise of grace, uh, the preservation of the remnant, right? When He says, when He's when when. Elijah thought that he was the only one left. We see that God always preserves a small amount of people to be faithful, right? Uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles and, as we said, his patience with Israel according to the flesh, right? God is patient. Another way of saying that is that God is long-suffering. I think that's a better way to say it. He suffers long for the sake of uh, those who might be saved, right? So there's all these things. There's a lot of mercies going on here. God is merciful. And um, uh, 
I think Charlotte is trying to learn, you know, Charlotte is going through some preschool curriculum uh, with a little homeschool kind of thing that we're doing with her. She's smart as a whip. She can, she won't, she, she won't do it with me because I guess she's a little shy around Dada, but uh, with Amelia, apparently she'll, she's starting to learn the verse from Psalm 136, I think it is, where, you know, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good. And she's learning that part. But the next part is what? Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. That's right. And his mercy endures forever, right? Um, in, in more, that's I think in the King James, right? And his, and his uh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. In like the ESV and I think in, in the King James, in, in the New King James maybe, it says like his steadfast love. Right? That's, that's another way to say it too. But his mercy endures forever. He has all kinds of grace that he gives to us. And so, with that, St. Paul says in verse 12, in, in chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Um, so, with that, let's, let's go on and talk more about these mercies um, and what they mean, what they might have meant to the Roman Christians. Uh, who wants to read those next two paragraphs before that next question? The Roman Christians would have immediately recognized mercies, architerium, mm -hmm. from the psalms which they sang when they gathered for when they gathered for worship, the Psalms of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, use this word repeatedly to describe the surpassing loving kindness and grace of God. The Roman Christians most likely followed the Jewish prayer custom of requesting God's mercies. When the Romans gathered for prayer and Paul's new letter was read to them, they would have heard Romans 12:1 in, in this context. After asking God for his mercies, the apostles' letter would encourage them on the basis of those mercies to sacrifice their lives to the Lord. Paul set the tone in 12, 1, verse, verses 1 and 2 for understanding our daily vocation of calling as a vital part of our worship of God. Our Christian worship is by no means confined to the time spent receiving God's gracious gifts in his sanctuary, but continues as we live out these gifts and daily activities. The backyard for these verses is unquestionably the temple worship of Israel that enumerated the presentation of various sacrifices, especially slaughtered animals. Now that Christ has offered himself as the once and for all time sacrifice, we are freed from the old covenant to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Okay. And... Not to pick on you too bad, but it's the background of these sacrifices, or the background for these when verses. he's thinking about his backyard. Yeah, his backyard probably needs some work done, so that's probably a, a bit of a slip. That's all right. I'm just joking, Tim. So how do the how 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 does the word mercies describe God's work in your life, uh, and how does the word sacrifice describe your life as a Christian? So that first one's. Good place to start. How does the word mercies describe God's work in your life? I'm still here. <laughs> okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he is 
He has preserved you in that way. Yeah. I mean, they're too innumerable to enumerate. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just goes on and on. You could go and spend the rest of your life outlining what God's done for you and the mercies He's granted you, and especially mm -hmm. forgiveness of sins mm -hmm. daily, mm -hmm. hourly. Yeah. Minute by minute. Yeah. Moment to moment. So, if that's the case, I mean, everybody kind of agree with that? It's just too much no, to really like count. That's like we say in the Lord's Prayer, give us our, this day our daily bread. You know, okay. That daily bread, like Tim said, it covers a lot, a lot of stuff. Of stuff uh -huh. You know, but those are his mercies yeah. that he gives to us. Absolutely. Through the daily bread. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That and, I mean, not to say that that's anything small at all. I mean, when you see the small catechism, it's like, what is meant by daily bread? Right. Hmm. And Luther has this long list right. of stuff, and then he, and then at the very end of everything, he goes and the like. Yeah. It's like so, yada yada yada, etc. etc. Right. So all kinds of stuff that God blesses us with with the daily bread and what that means, and also uh, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Right. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Uh, but deliver us. From evil, right? There's all these things that God shows His mercy in, in, in the spiritual sense, but also the bodily sense. I mean, it's just, yeah, I think you're right. It's too much to really say all the things that He is showing with His with His mercy, right? So, if that's the case, and we have receive all kinds of mercies from God, but you just can't even name them all. How does the word sacrifice describe your life as a Christian now? First of all, do you have to make any sort of sacrifice to receive the mercies that God gives? No. 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 So then now, <clears throat> what is sacrifice for you? If it's not to gain anything, then what is it for? <clears throat> Show your love. I mean, you know, we... Uh... When, when, I, when I was thinking of mercy here, mm -hmm. God loves us. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to me, that's that's everything. I yeah. Guess. yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, you, you don't have, he did the sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so we wouldn't have to. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and everything, God loves us, so everything we have, everything we do, everything is a gift. Yes. So if it's a gift, I mean, I guess you just say thank you. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, That's right. You know, I guess, I, I don't know. It shouldn't be a sacrifice, whatever you do, I guess. Well, and see, that's the thing, is that when we talk about sacrifice, we talk about things that hurt, right? Like, it should be painful to have to make a sacrifice. At least that's that's the understanding, right? Um, that in the Old Testament, I, I, I like to... I mean, it's not that I enjoy these things, but it's kind of interesting to think about what it meant to sacrifice a Passover lamb, right? <clears throat> Do y'all know what would go into that? Yes, and it's awful. It is, it's pretty bad. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's painful. I won't say it's bad. It's painful 
because that what would happen? Like sacrificing Greta. Yeah, it's like your family yeah. pet. Right. Yeah. Because what what it would be was that like you would have if if you had the ability to have lambs, some people and families were too poor to do these sorts of things, so they would have other kinds of sacrifices. But if you could have a Passover lamb for the family, or you know things like that, you would have to have that lamb be without spot or blemish. And to do that, you wouldn't keep that lamb with all the other animals so that it would get all banged up and stuff like that. You'd keep that lamb safe and sound in your house as much as possible and feed it and, and take care of it. And usually the lamb would be about like a year old, a little over a year old, which would be the age of an adult for the lambs, you know, so that they could reproduce. And from this great specimen of a lamb, that would have been great to have as breeding stock for more sheep. You take that lamb, not only that, but it's the family pet, the beloved pet of the family, and you take it to the temple to have them slaughter it as a sacrifice. And you give it wholly over to God, you know? And so it's just like, that's how traumatic it, it could be and how painful it would be to give a sacrifice. But now that God has done that himself with his son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we no longer have to do these things uh, to satisfy guilt or, you know, anything like that. When we hear about what God has done for us, our sacrifice is simply what you said, Paul, a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, you know, which on some level for some people is painful, Right? Because some people don't want to say thank you because they don't think that they need to say thanks for anything, right? They don't think that they have sinned bad enough for Jesus to die for them. Strange as it sounds to us, maybe, there are people out there, whereas once you understand what God has done, that sacrifice is no longer painful, right? That sacrifice is no longer traumatic, as it were. That sacrifice is joyful, yeah? It is a lot like what the patriarchs did in their sacrifices, as we saw before. It was thanks to God for what he has done. Yeah, and that's what our sacrifices are now. It is a thanksgiving. And that's also not to say that sacrifices, uh, according to the flesh, aren't always painful. Because they can be. Because you can sacrifice in tithing or in giving, you know, and that that can hurt sometimes because you say, because sometimes 10, 10% to some people, at the, you know, if you're just going to have a baseline, you say 10% of giving, some people just think, that's a lot. That's a lot of what I got, you know, and, oh man, I could use that for this or that or the other. But when you understand what God has done for you, it pales in comparison to what it is that you're giving, right? Um, and that is, and that it doesn't, it, it makes it less painful if you want to think of it that way. Yeah. I had a pastor tell me one time, God doesn't want 10% of you. He wants 100% right. of you. So it's very reasonable to ask for 10. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very reasonable. And, and to say that God can even bless even that little amount, you know, for something that's truly great and to his glory. So yeah, and there's also those sacrifices of financial and... Also time, you know, we say time, talents, and treasures and things like that. So if you have the time to give on top of what you give financially, 
you know, God calls you to that as well. So, and sometimes that can hurt because you go, I'd love to spend my time doing something else than, than going cleaning out the church storage unit or something like that, you know, or uh, going and cleaning out, going and cleaning up the flower beds at church or, or going and serving in a soup kitchen or whatever, you know. Um, I'd love to do these other things, but that's the sinful flesh. The sinful flesh doesn't want us to give up what we think belongs to us, but really it belongs to God. Yeah. So. I think one of the tougher things nowadays, since the society is more affluent than it was before, is personal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, I'd love to have two pieces of dessert rather than one, but you know that second piece is going to be deleterious to your health. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's tough because, you know, we all have our weaknesses and they vary from individual to individual. Yeah. And, and, and I'll say this, um, it's kind of interesting, but I'm from Texas, and so this is no slight against Texas, or at least where we are in Texas, but um, because I grew up being pretty well off, right? I, my parents did pretty well for themselves as far as working hard um, and making sure that I didn't lack for really anything growing up. But then when I talked to my wife, who was from like upstate New York in a very depressed part of the country and being and serving for a year in Ohio, which is not poor by most standards. It's that, you know, being in America by itself is the envy of the world when it comes to how we live. But there are still pockets where it's like, well, people live a little bit harder. And my father-in-law has, you know, he serves two congregations up up in Ohio. And um, they don't have a lot to give financially, but they give a lot of their time when they can, you know. And so and so it's kind of interesting to hear also when when Amelia went to Zion and Wahlberg, you know, that's a pretty wealthy congregation, too. And um, it's kind of interesting because uh, because she told her friend, uh, it's like, just so you know, these kids down here are going to have different problems than whatever kids you you dealt with in Cincinnati, right? Because that's that's where she came from, from a previous church. And Cincinnati is not a poor town, but it's more depressed than it is around here. Um, and the thing is, is that she's like, you're just going to have to deal with these kids who are probably going to have more different problems. And the different problems are kind of like what you were saying, Tim, that, you know, we're more affluent in some ways. And it's just like they have a problem of maybe overindulgence or maybe, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, some other struggles that whatever comes with that. I don't I don't, I don't presume to know what all those are. I mean, because I'm kind of a the fish in water myself, you know, when I grew up tell when I tell Amelia, I was like, yeah, I got a car when I was 16 or I got a truck when I was 16. And she was like, uh, yeah, I didn't get a car until I was like 21. I didn't even get my license till I was 21, you know? And I was like, oh, well, let me not tell you about all the trucks I wrecked and then my dad got me a new one, you know? Yeah. So I know, and when I tell her these things, she gets... She tries not to get resentful, but she's just like, it's just hard to hear about how your parents gave you all this stuff. 
And we went to the library because that's all we could afford, quote unquote, you know, we went to the library for fun. And I look at that, I'm just like, wow, that's actually, you know, makes me rethink things at least. Rethink things for sure. And what does it mean for sacrifice for me versus what does it mean for sacrifice for her or, you know, whatever. Everybody has their different sacrifices that they can make. Different things are painful to different people. Or, yeah, I'll say it that way. Okay? Any other thoughts of that on, on God's... God's... Man, for some reason, M's are really tough with my stutter recently. Uh, any other thoughts on God's... God's mercies and our sacrifices as Christians before we go on? You know, in, a, in an earlier, it was in this class we talked about, you know, had, uh, having to go to church. Yes. But then you say, oh, I get to go to church. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So with that kind of uh, mindset, you, you, you somewhat eliminate the, the pain or the feeling of sacrifice, I guess. Right, and the negative thought behind obligation or duty or whatever. You know, you say, instead of I get to, instead of I have to, I get to. Yeah. 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 It's a nice, it's a very simple way to see that shift that makes a big difference, right? Yeah. Makes a big difference. When the auto business <coughs> fell apart in the 80s, Ed lost his great job. And then by the time it finally came back up and he had a good job, it's how I get to go to work. Yeah. yeah. It's wonderful to get to go to work. Yeah. 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 That's kind of, that, that, yeah. My dad, my dad went through the same thing. I was, I was born in 86 and not long. And like, that was right at, right when everything fell apart. And, mm -hmm. uh, when I was like a year old, maybe about, no, I was about a year old almost where we moved to Atlanta. Cause that's where, that's the only place my dad could get a job was in Atlanta with a different company. And, mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I was like four or five years old that we were actually able to come back to Houston cause things were Better. Back up. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. 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 I mean, everybody goes through different struggles and hardships, and when you have that thought though that I get to do these things, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's move on here because we still got a ways to go in our study, but we're doing pretty good with time here. Um, measure of faith. Uh, who wants to read that next section for us? Measure of faith. Based on the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus, Romans 1 through 8 lays the theological foundation for Paul's teaching about sanctification. In Romans 12, verse 1 through 15 and 13, here he illustrates in detail the sacrificial life of a person who is righteous by faith and lives in Christ and in the Spirit. We may think that these Roman Christians would not need to hear the exhortations of these verses, since they should know how a Christian acts. They, however, unlike many of us, did not have the benefit of being raised in the church with all of the Old Testament and New Testament in their hands. Thus, the exhortations help these converted pagans in distinguishing their new life from their old one. Okay. 
So how does Paul connect grace and faith to sanctification in chapter 12, verse 3? And uh, we'll, we'll just start there. How does Paul connect grace and faith to sanctification in chapter 12, verse 3? So 12, verse 3, yeah, how does he do that? By grace. Um. Yeah, so how does he connect that? Um, what does he say here in chapter 12, verse 3? Um, Even me, I say to everyone, mm -hmm. do not think of yourself more high than you ought, but rather think of yourself. Be humble and thankful. Mm -hmm. mm. <coughs> yeah, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So Paul describes himself as as the example he does this a lot it's kind of funny um we might think that that's a little boastful but i, I mean it is it's but it's but it's reasonable it's justified yeah, yeah it's reasonable because he's <coughs> i mean he is a great example of faith because he doesn't mince words about his struggles and temptations and shortcomings he Ex he, he is exemplary in his humility and um, in his faithfulness, right? And that's, that's why he says things like, you know, um, uh, that, that, that people should use him as an example, right? As I have taught you these things, you know, do as I do, basically, yeah? So Paul describes himself living the Christian life according to the grace that is given to him. Um, and he appeals to the Romans to live according to the faith that is given to them, right? Because he says that each, um, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, right? That's not to say that, you know, everyone should be exactly like Paul and do exactly what Paul did. But that is to say that given, given Paul's vocation, given Paul... And his abilities, right? He was, I mean, he did so much because he was gifted in so many different ways with how he spoke, how he preached. He was just a brilliant man. And God used that in uh, proportion, right? Just like he does with us, right? And that doesn't mean that we have any necessarily less glory because we don't do all the things exactly as Paul did them. But it does mean that God has given us all different things to do, and they all go to the benefit of the church and to the glory of God, right? So, according to this verse, where does faith come from? I have faith and grace are given <clears throat> to us by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're gifts. Therefore, we should not have a superior attitude or right. feelings of self-righteousness. That's right. Yeah, it's all a gift. Right? It's all a gift from God. Uh, grace and faith uh, are gifts. Justification, right? The, the being made righteous in God's eyes is a gift. And those are the basis of sanctification. And sanctification, right? Being made holy is a gift, right? So they're all gifts from God. And like you said, it's, that gives us more reason to be humble. Yeah, gives us more reason to give thanks to God when good things happen or when good things are done by other people 
or something like that, you know, thanks be to God, God be praised, um, alleluia, which basically means God, God be praised, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Faith comes from God, grace comes from God, all these good things come from God. Yeah? Um, how about that next part? Who wants to read that next part for us? We'll just keep on rolling along here. At first, it may appear that Paul describes different graces or faiths for each Christian calling. But note that Paul has in view the grace and the faith, not his faith, as in some translations. His does not appear in the Greek. Paul's comparison with the body, verse 4, may help us understand the passage. Just as each part of a body partakes of the same food and breathes the same air, so the church so the church partakes of the same grace and faith, just as the different functions of the parts of a body are sustained by the same food and breath. The different callings of the church are sustained by the same grace and faith. Each person living by grace through faith fulfills his or her particular calling instead of meddling in that of another. No seek the admonition in verse three okay yeah so the admonition in verse three yeah um for i say through the grace given to me that everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but think soberly as god has dealt to each one a measure of faith um so with that how do faith and grace guide the sacrificial activities of the christian life What did y'all put for that one? Well, God also gave us different talents. And so, what, say, some people are really good at, I wouldn't be able to do it all. Yeah. And, uh, like, Alice told Tim, find those boards. If you'd have told me, I would have gone, what? Where are they? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everybody has their own uh, gifts and you know talents and things like that for sure. So yeah, God uses people in different ways, and that's the same way the body works. We all, mm -hmm. each body part has its own role to play, right? And and the hand can, and and as Saint Saint Paul says else, elsewhere in in other epistle, the hand can't say to the foot, "I don't need you," and the whole body can't be a hand. The whole body can't be a foot. The whole body can't be an eye. You need ears. You need a mouth. You need hands. You need feet. You need all kinds of different people with different talents to do different things. But um, with that, as the sacrificial activities that we participate in, how do faith and grace guide these things too? this makes any sense or not. No, go for it. <clears throat> I have down the the com the com the common thing that we have of faith unites us and strengthens us. Mm -hmm. It's a support system for each other. When nice. we come together at church 
we're a support system. We yeah. work together. We um, we encourage each other. We hear yeah. that somebody's gotten bit by a dog. We call them. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a support system here at the church, and in the faith and the grace that we have in that common area. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we come to church and. We're family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, this, the, you guys are more of a family than my really family. <laughs> 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 and, and that's just a, a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what it's to be God's family and to share in God's grace with others, it's a beautiful thing. Um, to even offer words of encouragement. I mean, you know, so, you know, Glenda was you know, attacked by that dog yesterday. And so I, I can't go and suture up whatever wounds she has from that dog attack, but I can pray for her and I can call her and visit her. And, you know, y'all can do the mm-hmm. same things and give her words of encouragement or bring her some, you know, bring her a meal or something to kind of help her lift her spirits and to show love in that way. Yeah, yeah. So... And we do that because... Those are sacrificial yeah. activities that we do in our Christian life and in, in our in our family here at mm-hmm. Lamb, of Lamb of God. At Lamb of God. At Resurrection. <laughs> yeah, a little slip there. Well, it, because, because God has shown his love to us, right? And, and, and that, that, I think that does drive us to be gracious and merciful because God is gracious and merciful to us, right? It makes all the difference in the world. And and we feel good when we help our brothers and sisters in Christ too, right? Because it's works showing love. Faith. What's that? It's the works of the faith. That's right. Yeah. It's so, a result of faith and yeah. you know, just the previous paragraph, I hate to go back to that, but it's okay. You have to go I mean, you have to understand, I guess, Paul, you know, the persecuted Christians, he denied God. He was a really atrocious person. And then on the way to, to Emmaus, or Damascus, God converted him. He said, okay, now you're going to work for me. And then when he saw God's grace, I mean, he probably had an abundance of energy and everything he did he probably thought there was something insufficient in it yep. because of how great the gift that God gave him was. Yeah. And the Romans, of all people, should understood should have understood that because most of them, if not all of them, knew Paul's history. Yeah. And to see him out professing God's grace, that you know, I above all, the chief of sinners, and yet God had grace on me and forgave me, and I have no option but to go out and deliver that word of God to you so you can you can experience the same faith I experience, a free gift of God. Yeah. And <clears throat> there's something else there when you said, and just to add to add to all this, right? I mean, this is all good stuff, and you're all exactly right. If I can just intensify it just a little bit. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road on the road to Damascus, what did he say to well Saul at the time? What did he say to Saul? 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Yeah, why are you persecuting me? Right? Because what Christ had said in other parts of the Gospels was that surely, you know, the what you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you, surely you did it to me. Right? And so that is part of being the body of Christ, the brothers and sisters of Christ, that what happens to us happens to Christ. You know, that when we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, we serve Christ himself, right? They are inseparable from him. So that's more motivation to serve those that God has given us, right? It's more motivation to say, even though it's imperfect, right? Paul was right in, in thinking that all the things that he did were insufficient in comparison to what God did to him. And that's true for us too, but that's not a reason to not do it, right? It's all the more reason to say, wow, what a great thing God has done. Even this little bitty thing is beautiful in his eyes and beneficial for that person that I'm helping, right? So just everything is everything y'all have said is just spot on. If I could, I just want to kind of pile on, <laughs> intensify a little bit to just show the depths of these things because it's it's really wonderful. It's wonderful when we support each other, when we love each other, when we do these things um, for each other, and to know that when we do these things for each other, we're doing them to Christ. We are showing his love and to be encouraged in those things you know it's a wonderful thing wonderful thing so um any thoughts on that um faith and grace guiding the sacrificial activities of our christian life i i, I will say this is that um when we do show God's love, God's working through us, right? It's not all our doing. It is God working through us. And the thing is, though, that our, our prayer, you know, you hear it a lot, honestly, when you have tragedies like what happened in Uvalde or other sort of, you know, shootings or tragedies and things like that. People will say, we're praying for the families. And they may also be like sending to a charity or supporting in some other way. But first and foremost, Christians are praying. And then you have people, maybe even Christians, who despise those prayers. Have you all seen that before? Where people will say, you know, thoughts and prayers don't do anything. What people need is actual works. And it's like, okay, I get you. I get you. If there's a need to give blood, go give blood if you can. If there's a need for financial assistance, give if you can. But do not ever despise prayer. I mean, the thoughts thing, I you know, whatever. But the prayers to God Almighty that he would comfort those families, provide peace and support in whatever way that he can, to despise those things, I think is really, it's demonic. I think it's demonic. Because it causes division amongst Christians that shouldn't be there because prayer is the first response that we should have. The first response. Um, and I like what someone said recently. I, I can't remember where I saw it, but it was like, you know, if you have time to think, you have time to pray. Right? If a tragedy is happening and you have time to think about something, you have time to pray about it. Right? 
So that's encouragement to say, for us as Christians, prayer is the first response. And then if we're moved on top of that to give, to do, we should. Prayer is first and foremost, though. So anybody who says, you know, prayers don't do anything or prayers are nothing in comparison, it's like, just stop. Don't even, don't even go there. It's, it's not the way it should be. Because that prayer is a sacrifice, right? It is a sacrifice to God asking him, you know, a sacrifice of yourself in some sense to ask him to do what only he can do, right? So that that sacrifice can even be despised by other people, like I said, but we know that our Father in heaven rejoices in that service. And prayer can be a service, right? It is a service. When you're praying on behalf of somebody else, you are serving them by requesting God to do what needs to be done. You see what I'm saying? There's something that I don't understand why people want to keep things to themselves when they have a problem, mm-hmm. uh, sickness or whatever. Yeah. I said, told, I've told many a person, the more people that know, the more prayers go up. Yeah. And I just think, you know, I, it's not that I want to be nosy or anything else when I ask people. It's just that I'm concerned and would like to pray for them. Right. Well, when one member of the body hurts, all everyone hurts. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing we have to remember. We're all one body in Christ. Right. And yeah. And one of us suffer, all of us suffer. Yeah. So. Now, there's, I, I think maybe some people get a little, a little worried about gossip or whatever. Yeah. Which is, which is a concern, but that shouldn't be a, a, something that keeps us from relying on each other in prayer, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, and if somebody is gossiping, it's just like, that's inappropriate. You should be praying. Let's, yeah. not, let's not speak uncharitably about someone when they're going through a hard time. If, you know. But that's our sinful nature. Some people are given more to that, and we have to pray for them, too. Right? And... and maybe sometimes remind them what it is they should be doing, right? Yeah. yeah. But you're right, Karen. That should not be a reason to say, I'm not going to say anything so nobody can pray for me. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, when when these things are overlooked or despised, we know that God smiles upon this, right? We, we know that God rejoices in our prayers and in our love shown to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to our neighbor. Yeah. So next question, um, as you read chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, consider how these words describe the life of Jesus. Write down specific parallels. So chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, um, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, Be kindly, affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. 
Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one, uh, repay no one evil for, for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live, peace, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay? So, how do these words describe the life of Jesus? Well, he was perfect, so he did all these things. Yeah, yeah. How can, can do you have some uh, examples maybe from Jesus' life? Feeding the 4,000. Yeah, feeding, feeding the feeding saints. People yeah. that were sick, mm -hmm. raising people from the dead. <coughs> yeah, raising people from the dead, healing the sick, the blind, the deaf, the mute. Praying. Yeah, yeah praying, absolutely. Um, not, not, uh, what is it? Not setting his mind on high things that St. Paul says elsewhere. Uh, I think it's in Philippians. I could be wrong, but he says that, uh, that equality with God is something that he is, is not something he saw as could be grasped. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't speak in such a way to say, you know, I'm the, you know, he didn't go around saying, you must believe what I say because I am the Son of God. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who my Father is? He just kept saying, you know, I am, basically, he would say, I am the Son of God. But whenever anybody would uh, contend with him on it, he would just let his words stand. He would rebuke people when they needed to be rebuked, right? He would say the things that needed to be said. Um, like when it says, you know, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. I mean, that, that itself could parallel Jesus chasing the, uh, the, the money changers from the temple, right? Without condemning the sacrificial system, yeah? Like, because he didn't say, these sacrifices are nothing in comparison to what I will do. But he says, you have turned my house of prayer into a house of... Uh, um, what did he say? Oh, you turned, yeah, to a den of thieves. Yeah. It's it's because the money changers were also charging this interest. exorbitant interest yeah. rate. Yeah, they were they were charging charging the exchange rate so they mm -hmm. could make a profit off of it instead of just exchanging the money. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which wasn't a bad thing in and of itself, but how they were using it was a bad thing. Right? They were they were basically extorting money from these people who had no choice mm -hmm. but to change over their coinage to the temple um, gold and silver, right? Uh, so you have these things going on, and that's just one example. Um, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, right, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Right? I mean, that sounds like Jesus in a nutshell with the Pharisees. Right? Um, he, 
he would speak against them, but he wouldn't harm them, right? He could have done all kinds of things to them as God himself, but he did not avenge himself. He let these things happen to him for the sake of righteousness, yeah? I mean, we can go on and on. Does anybody else have any, any other examples y'all can think of? Of uh, the life of Jesus can, within the framework of Romans 12, 9 through 21? I mean, those are, those are some good ones. Uh, that might be a good exercise is to do that in your own time and think about more, more examples of how Jesus, uh, how Jesus fulfills these things, right? Uh, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality and all these things. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Yeah. So um, how did Jesus overcome evil with good and extend that victory to you? That's our next question. How did Jesus overcome evil with good and extend that victory to you? Some of it is what you just said, like mm -hmm. feeding somebody who's thirsty. I mean, give, give them a drink if they're thirsty. Mm -hmm. Even if they're your enemy, you feed them when they're hungry. And don't, you let God take care of judgment and wrath. You don't wish bad thoughts on somebody that's mean to you. Yeah. I think the resurrection. Yeah, I was going to say, you That's, know, the horrible, horrible death that he mm -hmm. suffered yep. and died, that was bad. Yeah. And uh, But he turned it into a good thing through his resurrection so that we have victory over death and the promise of eternal salvation with him. That's wonderful. That's that's the ultimate. That's wonderful. Yeah. You know, I think that these answers go hand in hand, right? The perfect life he lived, he did not deserve the death that he got, right? But he took it upon himself willingly for our sake, died the death that belongs to us, but now lives the life that we are given freely in the resurrection from the dead, right? That, that, that his perfect life is now our perfect life, right? Mm -hmm. His spotless life of innocence is now our life of innocence, right? It's wonderful. Um, in his shedding of blood that was uncalled for in the sense that he didn't do anything wrong to deserve it, but it was called for that that's what was needed for us to be forgiven. Yeah. Um, and he extends that victory to us by his grace, through faith in his word of promise. Yeah? Very nice. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's such a basic, basic thing that we just need to keep repeating over and over again. And if I can brag on Charlotte a little bit more, mm -hmm. in case you can't tell, I'm very proud of her. But it's not that, it's, it's not that like we have super, super high expectations, but we just simply say a few things and then she surpasses our expectations with, with, with what she repeats to us. And uh, when they're at home, 
my wife just says, you know, who is Jesus? And Charlotte knows to say, um, when, when she says, who's Jesus? Charlotte will say, uh, Charlotte will say, um, my savior, you know, and she'll say, what did Jesus do? He died on the cross for me. And what else did he do? He rose from the dead. You know, it's just like the more we understand these things, the more we internalize them and repeat them, the more we realize just how wonderful that truly is. You know, um, just what it is that Christ has done, how he has extended that good gift to us by his grace. Um, died for you on the cross. You know, he is your savior and he rose from the dead to proclaim the victory. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, when he was on the cross dying, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When I read this a while ago, I thought of this morning's reading, mm -hmm. when Christ cast out the evil spirits mm -hmm. into the pigs yep. and ran them over the cliff. Yeah. I said, well, maybe that's what we ought to do, shoot all the evil people. <laughs> Well, that would. No, we should be thankful that, that God protects us from the evil spirit. It's true. Well, I, you know, Tim, I can. We'll we'll talk about good government right. in just a minute. Um, I personally think, and this is this this is just me. This is not an endorsement from Resurrection Lutheran Church or anything like that. That's my disclaimer. But I I I think there should be. Um, I think there should be the consideration of capital punishment for things like pedophilia and no you know, stuff like that child yeah. molestation i think that um there the there should be um, i was i was talking to somebody i can't i can't remember who it was there was there was an incident when when i was before i was a pastor there was there was a family that i knew from one of the churches i was at that that had this problem where the children were molested and um, and, and the, the stepfather was from somewhere in Africa. And he said, I don't, I don't understand the justice system with things like this, because in my country, if there was a man that did this to a child, we'd take him outside of the town and shoot him, kill him, mm -hmm. just be done with him. And when I told this to somebody else, I said, I said, yeah, cause you can't have people hanging around like that. And he's a, and he said, no, you can have them hanging around. Get it? <laughs> Get it? Yeah. You can have them hanging around from a tree is what he meant, right? Um, but it's just like, it's just like, yeah, these heinous things that people do is, you know, should be punished. But, and, and so, yeah, maybe that's how we can handle our hog problem. We'll pray that all the evil spirits go into all these hogs in Texas and just run them off a cliff. Um, <laughs> the hog farmers wouldn't appreciate it. Yeah, it's true. That is something that's kind of Bacon. interesting. Huh? Bacon. Bacon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, from these hogs that tear things up, I don't think you want that kind of bacon. No. So good. Good. When you feral catch them hogs. at a certain feral hogs? Oh, yeah. That's good. That's good pork. Ed, oh, really? Ed shot him, and he gave him to this guy who worked with him, who made tamales. Mm. If they get too big, though, they're not—they're uh -uh. not good. The bacon's still good. 
<laughs> I have a question. Yeah. When, when did Texas stop having capital punishment? Oh, they still have capital punishment. They still have? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. They still have capital punishment. Because at one point in time, didn't they stop for some years and I don't start know. back up again? That's a good question. I don't think so, but that's a good question. I really no, don't know. It's been proposed in the legislature a number of times. It never gets out of the legislature. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not going to happen in Texas until we get too many Californians in here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kidnapping no. used to be a capital offense. After. So is treason. Yeah. New York. New York. No. They don't want to go to New York. Oh. Yeah, Senator New York. Chevron's bringing three three thousand in, into Houston. Oh dear. Oh. They're moving their corporate headquarters there, uh-huh. and they're bringing all the people with them from California. We had a friend who worked for Chevron, and he got transferred to California, and he said, we're moving to Gay Bay. <laughs> <laughs> he hated it. I mean, he, it was, California's a beautiful state. It was yeah. wonderful climate. Yeah, yeah, it's All wonderful. that kind of stuff. It's a shame yeah. what's happened to it, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I lived in California for 41 years. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's a gorgeous state, but it's been just so ruined mm-hmm. by the liberals out there. Yeah. Well, that's neither here nor there right now, yeah. but we will actually you know what it kind of is here and there because we're going to be talking about living subject to the governing authorities, right? Uh-huh. Um, so... <laughs> Romans, which is going to be maybe a hot topic. We'll see. Um, It's kind of fun to talk about these things. Uh, Romans 13 defines the relationship of Christians with the authorities that govern them. As you read this passage, keep in mind the social tensions surrounding the early Roman Christians. The persecution they would suffer under Nero only six to ten years after receiving Paul's, Paul's letter and the Apostles' execution in A.D. 67 or 68. So, modern citizens often complain about the abuses of power by their government. How do such complaints compare with the situation faced by the early Christians? I mean, this is kind of a... I think this is kind of an unfair question. It's, it's not a question that has aged very well, I don't think, because uh, this is what written in 2002. I think 2002 was fantastic compared to 2022, uh, in terms of governmental relations and regulations and overreach and everything like that. But still, what's the comparison between abuses of power in our government and the complaints and, and, and the situation faced by the early uh, Christians? Some of the early Christians had to go underground because it was when it comes to the law to be Christian or they... Yeah, it was, it was, well, Christians, Christians turned out, it it was, it was, it's popularly thought, popularly thought that Christianity was outlawed. Um, And on some level it was, but it wasn't always acted upon by the authorities. It was only acted upon when it was politically expedient Mm. to do so. Same as today. Yeah. Mm. Well, except that Christianity is not technically outlawed unless they come through with these legislations like the Equality Act and things like that. You all know about the Equality Act. Um, it's something that's been proposed in Congress and uh, the huh? uh, people like uh, our, our uh, esteemed congresswoman from New York, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and things like and people like that. The woke people. 
yeah, want to want to have something called the Equality Act that basically says you're not allowed to discriminate for anything, for any reason, even if it's for religious conviction. So you'll get so if it goes through, you'll get on a federal level prohibitions of just as a as an example. It'll go even deeper than this and even more widespread than this. But like we have Lutheran uh, Lutheran parochial schools. And if there's someone who applies for a position at a Lutheran parochial school as a teacher or a coach or whatever, and they are gay, and we and and that church says we're sorry we can't hire you because you your life does not uh, match with our confession of faith, right? If uh, I mean it's one thing if you have been gay and now you are, you know, chaste and not acting on those things or whatever, you know, if, if you want to live a repentant life, that's one thing. But if, if you're, let's say, gay and you live or are married with, married to someone of the opposite sex, then we, then that does not fit with our confession of faith. And so we cannot hire you. This law would make that a discriminatory act that is, uh, um, liable to prosecution, right? And that would put Lutheran parochial schools out of business if someone targeted them in that way, you know. And even churches, it would it would any sort of um, any sort of speech against homosexuality or things like that would be seen as basically hate speech, hate crimes. And so I would have to, I would be. Uh, well, <laughs> they could try, but I basically I would I'd be threatened with prosecution if I were to preach against homosexuality as a sin or something like that. Didn't they have something a church here or some not necessarily here? But yeah, that uh, they were arrested. Mm -hmm. The minister was arrested because he spoke against homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Was that in America? Or? Yeah, no, that was here. I, I know what you're yeah. talking about. Huh? Was that in Texas? or? I think so. Really? But uh -huh. he, he well, said that all homosexuals need to die. Oh. Well, just, well like other, just like the other day, the FBI arrested this Catholic because yeah. he was professing you know, that abortion is illegal and you should have children and he had seven kids and so they waited until he was in a public environment and then they arrested him in front of his kids and one of the FBI agents even pushed one of the little one of the little kids and they arrested him for who knows what. Well, I I heard that they were like at an at a protest in front of a Planned Parenthood or something like that and mm -hmm. and they had an altercation with someone who was pro-abortion mm -hmm. and because of what he said to that person who was pro-abortion that's why the FBI came and yeah, they waited until they went to a restaurant or something to arrest him or a mall yeah so it was a public arrest so yeah. everybody could see what they were doing yeah so things are getting pretty bad yeah. um, things are getting pretty bad for, and and it's and it's it's acts of intimidation right it's acts of intimidation to keep us from professing the faith. And even if there was a pastor that said that all homosexuals need to die, under our constitution, that is not actionable 
for any sort of criminal process. Except it's hate speech, and there's a separate category for hate speech. Which is indirect violation of the First Amendment. Right. Uh, because the First Amendment does not, and I'm not going to get too political here, but it's true. The First Amendment does not pol protect polite speech. It protects speech that's offensive. You should have the right to say whatever it is you'd like to say and, and, and have people disagree with you and not be under the fear of having the cops come after you for what you say. Um, I mean, that's happening in Britain. That's been happening in Britain for a long time. And now with social media, cops are, are arresting people in Britain because they post, they post like memes on Facebook and it makes people upset and they call the cops. Cops go arrest the guy. Seriously. It's crazy. Um, that pastor, instead of saying homosexuals need to die, he should say they need to repent. Yeah. Well, from what I understood, that he took it from the Bible, some some verse from the Probably Bible. Probably Leviticus. And yeah. Kind of turned it around or whatever when it talks about homosexuals. I mean, if that's what he wants to say, I'm not going to say that I necessarily agree with him. Um, I think. But she's right. I mean, yeah. first repent. Absolutely. You know. The point is, though, is that as far as our governing system, though, he should not have been arrested for saying that. I mean, let people, let people disagree with him and see him for the wrong that he's saying, but that should be consequence enough, and not and not the governmental authorities coming in and saying, "This hurt somebody's feelings," or "You said the wrong thing, and now you're going to get in trouble." I think in Houston, were, I don't think they passed it. They were going to pass a city ordinance where pastors had to turn in their sermons. Yeah. Oh That's right. Were gonna, if they were going to speak against gays, gays yeah. and whatever. And you know what happened as a result? I, I, I know. Uh, you got a lot of other pastors that weren't in that scope of discovery, sending in their their sermons and sending in their sermons over and over and over again. It's like, yeah, I'll just, they flooded the office with a bunch of sermons that weren't requested. Uh, I know that even like, you know, Pastor Murray at Memorial in Houston, like sent a bunch of his sermons to their office. It's just like, I know you're not asking for them, but hey, as long as you're asking everybody else, I'll send you mine, you know? So yeah. Um, it's like, and what are you going to learn something exactly? And what are you going to do about it? Is basically the challenge that they had. It's like, what are you going to do about it? Are you really going to come after us? And if that's the case, we Christians have a history of not giving in to this kind of intimidation and knowing that in the end, God blesses us anyways. Why would we be scared? I mean, why should we be scared of any of this intimidation, right? But, I mean, there is something to learn from the martyrs and the persecuted church in the early church. There's something to learn there that um, if you didn't die as a martyr, uh, you would, if you were involved in the church, sometimes you would lose your livelihood. Like there was, there's, there's an instance of, uh, I think it's Cyprian of Carthage when he, he was a bishop during all this time. A persecution in the early church, and he was known. Um, this is this this is after the time of the apostles. He was known as someone who was a Roman authority, and then as soon as he became a bishop in the church, he lost his status in Roman society. 
And that in, that in itself is a sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. And in some sense, that's kind of what we have now is that, you know, it's like if, if, you're a, if you're a Christian, maybe not so much here in Fredericksburg or in Texas in general, but it's like there are parts of the United States, there's parts of the world where it's like if, if you're a professing Christian and then you actually live the faith and you actually, you know, do what you say and say what you do, right? Uh, that can mean that you're not going to get the best job. You're not going to get the best position. You're not going to be highly esteemed. You're going to be despised. Uh, especially if you're like a Christian, not like a, you know, if you're a scientist who's a Christian and you say that evolution is bunk, I mean, you're ridiculed, you know, you are just lambasted and you're never going to get any sort of public, you know, publishing or whatever. And that's just one example. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's, I think there's becoming more and more, um, you know, valid complaints on our side that are growing in, you know, similarity to what the early church faced. Yeah, Rob. The fall of the Roman Empire, uh, some of it was due to the moral decay and just the decline of the whole society and everything. And this week, for the first time, you know, I was watching TV and normally I would just watch history stuff. But we always mute the commercials, yeah. you know? And so I don't know what this commercial was about, but it's the first time I've ever seen two guys kissing each other. Yes. Yeah. And I said, what? what? I, I started to talk to God in a yeah. bad way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I said, this is what happened to Rome. Yeah. I mean, I think they're advertising the drug. Yeah. Yes. HIV. 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 Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that well that's very sense. appropriate, I guess. Uh, wow. You know, yeah. it's, it's just not right. I mean, uh, when I worked in Houston, and we still lived in Dallas. I would go to lunch with my dad once a week or twice a week. Anyway, we went to the pig stand over there on Washington Avenue. And we parked and got out of the car and two men come, came out of the restaurant and they kissed each other. Yeah. yeah. And I just about got wow. sick. Wow. Yeah. I just about got That's sick. Amazing. That's the first time and only time I've ever in person, <laughs> seeing two men kiss each other. And I mean, they were, it wasn't like a father and a son. Right, yeah. It was a real thing. Holy Well, you know, and that's, that's, that's the right reaction. I'm, I'll just tell others, that's, that's the correct, that reaction was correct. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a sickening thing. It's it's something that is not to be celebrated and or Texas. anything like that. Yeah, in Texas. Oh yeah, I remember. I remember. I remember going. I remember going as a as as a kid. Not as a kid. I was probably like, yeah, like high school maybe. I would I would go. I went to the Galleria one time and I saw these two guys and they had their arms around each other and and you know obviously in a loving embrace and I was just thought to myself that's really weird. Mm-hmm. 
It's like, I don't think I like that. Oh, yeah. It went gay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To me, I always grew up thinking outside of San Francisco, Montrose is probably the worst. It is. It is the second, Montrose is the second largest gay community in the United States behind San Francisco. Behind the Castro District in San Francisco, yeah. So, but when I say these things, like it's the right thing to feel disgust at these things, that's because what is happening is so contrary to God's created order, so contrary to God's established will, that it is such a thumb in God's eye for what it is that should be basic understanding of nature. And that's all the more reason why we shouldn't kowtow to these things, but we should speak the truth so that hopefully these men and women who are engaged in these things will see the error and will repent. I mean, it's not enough to just say it's disgusting, but it is. it should be more to say it's gross because God does not, God, does, God hates these things because it's sinful. And just like someone who drinks too much or who steals or gossips should repent, so should homosexuals. They should repent. And that's the whole point of having that reaction is to say we should despise what they do, pray for them, and hopefully they will. And maybe reach out to them if we know somebody that's, and say, that's not what God wants for your life. That's not, what, that's not God-pleasing at all. And, if that's, if, and, and people would always... I think people asked me one time, it's like, well, what if a gay couple walked through the doors of your church? Would you kick them out? I'd say, no, I wouldn't kick them out. But if they wanted to become members of the church, we'd have to have a long discussion about what that would mean, right? If they would come in and say, well, we're married, then I'd have to say, well, you're not, really. Uh, marriage is only between a man and a woman. Um, you probably change your sermon for the day, too. What's that? You'll probably change your sermon for the day too. I would I would probably find a way to you know, depending on what it was, yeah. you know. I mean, but if they found out it's like, well, we don't, you know, we we believe what the Bible says and that God does not smile on these things, they probably wouldn't come back. Unless they were convicted and unless they wanted to actually live according to God's will. Then maybe and for that we'd say thanks be to God and let's figure out a way to remedy this situation, which Brings up a whole other can of worms. But, you know, so it's one of these things of like when you watch TV, I mean, why do you think we don't have a TV up in our house? I, you know, it's one of those things of like if even if we streamed stuff on, even if we streamed things, things still have ads and you never know what stuff's going to pop up. And I don't want, I don't want Charlotte to, Charlotte or Henry to see those things without us being able to explain things first, right? Well, so you know, I mean, I just think the fall of the Roman Empire and we're going yeah. down the same path. Well, yeah, because, because the thing is, is that the more you see these things on TV as if they're normal, right? and that's why we don't want our kids to see them as normal, no matter how many times we tell them it's not normal, it's not normal. If they see it all the time, men kissing, women kissing, they'll say, well, obviously it's widespread, isn't it? Otherwise, why is it showing up on my TV all the time? And, and it's really kind of interesting. It's propaganda because the thing is, is that 
what's the populate what's the actual population of the of the the LGBTQ community? Do y'all know the actual population Less percentage? 1%. Less than one percent. Mm. And yet, if you were to see the portrayal on TV, you'd think it was at least twenty five percent of the population. That's or not fifty two percent. Or may, yeah, depending on what channels you're watching, for sure, or whatever ads pop up. But it's it's just one of those things. It's like uh, the it's kind of it's also what Paul talks about, you know, that in Romans one, where you get to the part where he says, you know. Um, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but are all, but also approve of those who practice them, right? So an approval of LGBTQ stuff, say, we affirm you in your choice, and all, it's like, well, you're just as bad, yep. you know, you're just as bad. But you know what? I have seen it at HEB. Yep. And I've seen it downtown. Of shops. people coming in from out of town and things like that. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. it's becoming yeah. more widespread. I think because of this takes, you know, seeming okay. acceptance. They yeah. arms around each other. And, yeah. Well, some, oh yeah, some know, churches. Yeah, had a big gay flag outside. And I think a lot churches. of it with these, yeah. young, <laughs> with these yeah. younger people, it's a fad. Yeah, it's becoming a fad. Yeah, peer pressure. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that's like, it is peer pressure, it's a fad, but what's really sad about that is that they will be affected by this fad for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really demonic about it, too, is that they're led into these things with temptation, and it's just really sad to see. It's like, I dare you to say something to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't dare me. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right let's let's keep going because i mean but but the government plays into this too because now the government uh, just to kind of bring it around to the government the government now according to a, what the obergefell decision with the supreme court has said that gay marriage should be legal in all 50 states or whatever no that's what they say it's not what it should be that's exactly right the thing is is that now that roe v wade there's 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 some hope now because you're hearing even amongst the opponents of the, the decision that struck down Roe v. Wade, they'll say, watch out because now this is giving them precedent to come after the Obergefell uh, decision about gay marriage. It's, it, and that's what Clarence Thomas has said too. Justice Clarence Thomas has said, this gives the momentum to say we can go back to that decision and strike it down because now we're seeing that it goes against the tradition of the Constitution. The Constitution has nothing to do with gay marriage. It has nothing to do with abortion. It has nothing to do with even like birth control or anything like that. Some of these other things have come out with. You know, so they're looking at this as possible precedents to, to rewind the overreach that has been taking place back like since the 70s, you know, which if it happens, Thanks be to God. I think it would be a great thing because when Obergefell came out and all this stuff, like, it's like, oh, wow, this is not good. Not good. Um, anyways, uh, so we see that Paul addresses four topics revealing basic questions with which the early Christians must have struggled. First, God is the source of authority that is exercised by human government. Uh, and uh, seeing that in chapter 13, verse 2. 
This is a further expression of the truth found in the commandment, honor your father and your... your in the, the commandment, um, you... Uh, you um, honor your father and your mother. Uh, by respecting our parents and others in authority, we show our respect for God, who has placed these people and institutions over us for our own good. In what God-pleasing ways can you honor your government? Pay taxes. Pay taxes. Yeah, pay, pay taxes. Have breakfast for them. What's that? Have, yeah, yeah, like we had for yeah. Back the Blue, yeah. yeah. Um, give honor to those who serve in a capacity to protect the innocent um, and remind them that that's what they're supposed to be doing, right? That you all probably heard in some of my prayers that I was just like, you know, Lord, give those in authority over us the wisdom to act as they should, right? And I don't, I don't think we have anything to worry about here in Fredericksburg, but I mean, that's, well, maybe, depending, right? Depending on, on certain authority figures. But the thing is, is that, um, I was really glad that when we when when there was the whole thing of like you know during COVID no more than ten people or whatever and people complied voluntarily but the sheriff was just like I'm not gonna go shut down a church if they have more than ten people. I have a new sheriff now. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got a new mayor too. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. Is this where praying for the authorities comes from? Yeah, 13 verse 2. Um, yeah, so give honor. Um, but we see that for there is no uh, authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Um, and, and But this needs to be addressed. So there are God-pleasing ways to honor your government, pay your taxes, Pray for the authorities, you know, pray for, and we pray for them every Sunday, right? Mm -hmm. pray, for, pray for your leaders. I'd say, you know, some people might say, you know, vote, 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 and that's true, but yeah, you should vote, but also get involved with things that matter. Like, um, I'm, personally, I'm, and this is just me, I'm all for uh, the, the recent movement amongst the people that actually live in Fredericksburg to restrict short-term rental properties, you know, to say, you know, well, we're going to only have so many permits for this and there's going to be penalties for those who don't have the permits or whatever. Cause it's like, it's, it's degrading the, the character of our town in a lot of ways. I mean, that's one thing. Maybe that's not, on people's priority list, but I think that's that's something like if you want to have a voice for that, have a voice for that. If you want to have a voice against abortion or something like that, or if you want to have a voice against um, certain property taxes or certain raise in this, that, or the other, you should you should be vocal in those things and pray that those things are for the good of the people, right? Any other thoughts on that? Ways yeah, you can give honor to your government? Yeah, I agree with you because look at all the you know, they keep complaining there's not enough housing for all the people who live in Fredericksburg, but then every time a house comes up for sale, a real estate agent or some wealthy person buys it and turns it into an Airbnb. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, mm -hmm. you go down Mulberry and almost every other house is an Airbnb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
It's driving up the price of real estate. Oh, yeah. It's really sad because you have like families that can't afford to... You have families that can't afford to live in this town. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. And what's really sad, and and, and teachers, and teachers, we, we've got a yeah. teacher living Police in our officers, little guest yeah. house right now. Oh yeah. Uh, he he just started at the middle school, and um, he's trying to find some place to rent. Mm -hmm. But he even those rentals I mean, he, are he's, expensive. He's not getting paid yeah. that much. Yeah. yeah. And, right. and he can't find. I mean, apartments are just outrageous. Yeah. So anyway. And there's something the government could do about that. They could restrict things to make it harder to have short term rentals. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. um, but I mean, there's been such freedom in Fredericksburg for so long on these things that it's going to take a lot to roll it back if that's what they want to do. Anyway, so that's just one example uh, of ways you can give honor to your government because it's like the government's not there without, without the community that's surrounding it right so it's like if you don't have much of a community what's the government doing except for regulating short-term rentals <laughs> you know so we'll see what happens with all that but that's just one example um but it's uh i'd say do the good that saint paul says uh should be rewarded even if you will be punished for it you know so it's like if you speak out against these things, if you if you talk to somebody who has a house for sale, and it's and it's something that could be sold for, I mean, even if it was going back down to when we first got here of like two hundred thousand dollars, you know, that's more affordable for a family to own, and say no, we're not in, we're not going to sell to anybody but a family and somebody who actually wants to live here. I don't know if you find a whole lot of people that could resist the temptation of selling something for five hundred or six hundred thousand when they could, you know, to sell it for two for someone who's actually going to live there that actually could afford it. It's a tough thing. Uh, but speak out against these things. I think it'd be good. Um, but to honor your government, hold them accountable, right, for the good that they should be doing. Um, and that's what some people. I think some people, even in the Missouri Synod, got off off the rails with Romans 13 by just doing whatever the government told them to do during COVID. And there was some pushback for that. And I think there's rightfully should be some pushback for that, where it's just to say um, the government isn't always going to do what's good and right. Yeah, really. Isn't that interesting? So you have to weigh things out. Ed's least favorite thing is rendering to Caesar what is Caesar? Yeah. Where you're paying income tax. Because yeah. he thinks you give it to the government and then they squander it yeah. on foolish things. Yeah. Well, thankfully. That's your. Yeah. Well, in Texas, in Texas, we don't have a state income tax, right. so that's good. There's right. a federal income tax, but. Right. Yeah, in taxes, that's another thing. Give, give honor to the government by actually pushing back against unjust taxation. You know, that's, that's another way to do it as well. Speak out against these things. Um, because some things aren't right. It's not necessarily right, I would say, to charge, you know, uh, to charge a family that, you know, can barely afford their mortgage exorbitant property tax. You know, it's, yeah, something to, something to think about. So second, so that's, that's first, God's 
God is the source of the authority that is exercised by human government. Second, such authorities are God's servants for your good. God has given authority to government for the good of citizens. Obviously, such authority can be and has been abused throughout history. In such cases, a government is not acting as God's servant. So how might thinking of government leaders and institutions as God's servants affect your attitude toward them? And how should this teaching affect Christians serving in government? So, how does it affect your attitude toward government leaders and institutions when you see them as God's servants? They're not always acting like God's servants. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, if they're acting as tyrants, then you have every reason to say this is not right. right? If, 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 they're, if, if they're doing something that is contrary to God's will... Like, as we said, with the Supreme Court, a decision on, um, on, on gay marriage or even Roe v. Wade or whatever, you have every right as a Christian to speak against that and to say that's not right. And I think what was, what was, what was the woman in Kentucky who was a, a clerk that got into a lot of trouble because she wouldn't certify gay marriage certificates? Yep. I mean, just think what would have happened if there were more people like that and they all said no and they all got jailed for it mm -hmm. and they were shown to be the tyrants that they really are, how quickly do you think people would have pushed back against these things and actually showed that the government is not being a servant of God in these things, right? Um, and that's like passive resistance too. It's not being violent or anything. It's just saying, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Mm -hmm. And I'll face the consequences for and it. And they throw people in jail like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then you've got these awful people that are are beating people up in, in the subways up in New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You had those green little ladies that came <laughs> on the the subway and yeah. were beating up people on the those don't get thrown in jail. They get arrested and released. Yeah. yeah. No prosecution. No prosecution on these things. That's not right. And in uh, Illinois now, I think uh, they just passed something to their state legislature and was signed by the governor that said, um, uh, you know, there's, there's changes on how long people can be held for certain offenses and certain things that were, that you would have to be held in jail for and prosecuted for. Now they're not going to prosecute you or keep you in jail. The, one of those things in Illinois is that if you have, if, is that if there is a homeless person on your property, the police will not come and remove them. Well, you just remove them yourself. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Paul Smith and Wesson, yeah. <laughs> Which, if that happens, it's Illinois. What do you think is going to happen with you if you... You're going to get prosecuted. You're going to get... You're, you're going to get and so if that's the case, though, maybe that's what people should do, is that they should do the good thing, even though they'll face, you know, you know, incorrect consequences for that, so that people will become more aware and they'll see the government and how they are contrary to God's will. It's scary because I don't want to be that guy, right? I don't want to be the guy who has to, to, to do those things to show how the government's doing wrong. But somebody's got to. Yeah, but you know, the sad thing about it is, like in California, you know, the people said, well, it's not affecting me. You know, they're living their own lives and everything else. And then the next thing you know, it gets worse and worse and worse. And then it does start affecting you. 
Well, rather than fight back, they leave. They leave. And they come here and try to do the same thing here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. No. Yeah. Not on, not on my property. It's not. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah. So there's there's this understanding that leaders and institutions of the government are God's servants, and we should remind them of these things. Right. They have no right to come and tell us certain things that pertain to God, right? Uh, and we have just as much free speech as they do. We so should. Why? Why can't they? I mean that. They make a comment, and, and that offends me. That comment offends me. Well, yeah. it doesn't matter if it offends me, but if she makes a comment that something offends you that's yeah. not right, that's yeah. okay. We're going to go with you. We're, right. we're going to say, okay. Because they're a protected class or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of these things. I think, I think our understanding and our employing of Proverbs are very much needed now. Because we need to have wisdom to point out the foolishness of certain people and to respond wisely so that we can understand, look, somebody's going to be a fool and they're going to act foolishly towards me. I'm not going to respond in kind unless I be as foolish as they are. And also so that those who desire wisdom will see that's how you act. Not like that. This is how you act. Right. So we need to be, uh, you know, as as Jesus says, as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. Right. Um, and be wise in how we respond to these things. And when somebody says, you know, well, that comment offends me and you just say, well, that's just too bad. They'll say, well, you're just an intolerant, right. you know, you, you're just an intolerant, bigot, homophobe, transphobe. And I'll just say and I'll just say, yeah. Okay. God bless you. Yeah. God bless you. I'd say Have I don't a nice know day. what you. I don't know what those mean. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know what's kind of funny? Uh, and then you just turn around and walk away. You, yeah. You know. Yeah. And just leave them alone. Just like fine. Bye. Um, Easier said than done. Yeah. I know. It's very. Yeah. It's very hard to do. I saw this one thing. Y'all. Do y'all know about the Babylon Bee? It's like a satire site or whatever. It's like. It's fake news, literally fake oh. news kind of stuff. But uh, um, they put out videos every once in a while. And there's one video where it's like a Texan welcoming his neighbors from California. And he goes in and he's like, hey, how's it going? And they're still wearing masks and stuff like that. And he's just like, they're wondering why he's not wearing a mask. He's like, because it's sunshiny and, and, and bright and warm outside. And, and we're standing well far apart from each other, that sort of thing. And, but anyways... And, uh, and there's, and there's also the thing where he has a gun on his hip and they're just like, he's got a gun. And he's like, Oh, it's okay. This is Texas. Everybody's got a gun. And there's like, what about crime? Why don't you have a whole lot of crime? And he goes, cause everybody has a gun. Yeah. Right. And, and, but, uh, there was one thing that the people from California were saying, my name is, you know, Travis, I go by he, him, and this is, you know, uh, Sonia or whatever. And she goes by she, her, you know, the pronouns. And they go, what are your pronouns? And the guy from Texas goes, well, I don't really believe in pronouns. I think that they're reductive and they are discriminatory. And honestly, I'm just offended that you would ask me that. <laughs> and they go, oh, we're so sorry. And he goes, nah, I'm just kidding with you, you know. And I was just like, that's, that's the perfect response. What are your pronouns? Well, I think 
they're, I think that's very offensive for you to even ask. What does it matter? You know, sort of thing. It's like, be as yeah, wise as serpents and as innocent as doves and these things. When you um, have to fill out a consent, like we got a consent uh, at Walmart to get a flu shot yesterday, mm -hmm. they ask on there about gender, but they say, what were you born as, or what were you called when you were born? Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, and I'm, and it's, it's my madness. doctor's office in, in Austin is the same way. It's what madness. What do you think of your, you know, what gender? I just wouldn't answer the question. <laughs> yeah. Just don't answer the question. Well, the question oh. of what color are you? I never want to answer that. Don't answer the Does question. Does it make purple. a difference? Purple, yeah. <laughs> Does it purple. really make a difference? Yeah. What color are you? I am turquoise. <laughs> and if you say anything different, I will sue you. Yeah. Man. All right. We got to keep rolling on here. <laughs> so anyways, the government leaders are supposed to be God's servants, right? And Christians serving in government should see themselves as servants, which actually you find that more often. If someone is a practicing Christian in government, I mean, unless they go off the rails, typically you do see them as the servants of their constituents if they're in Congress or something like that. More often than not. I won't say it's every time, but more often than not, right? And I think more Christians should serve in government. And if you have, if you have, a, uh, if you have a choice between a Muslim and a Christian, I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, well, I'd want to pick the Christian over the Muslim, right? That may sound discriminatory, but I guess color me exclusive. I like Christians. Well, um, the whole voting process is discriminatory. Oh, yeah. Ex and, I mean, and, 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 and exclusive, yeah. Or if it's not. That's right. So, mm -hmm. anyways, I think more Christians should serve in government. Um, all right, third, as God's servant, a government, not individual vigilantes, can punish... Uh, can punish <laughs> evildoers. Excuse me. We see that in chapter 13, verse 4. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, this text supports a criminal justice system that includes capital punishment, although there have been many Christians who have argued otherwise. I think they're wrong on this, you know, that there should be a capital punishment system. Uh, we, if we read Genesis 9, verses 5 through 6, so keep a, keep a marker in Romans. We'll go to Genesis 9, right? Uh, Genesis 9, verses 5 through 6, where we see that um, it says, oops, I'm not in the right chapter. Here we go. Genesis 9, verses 5 through 6. Surely your lifeblood I will demand. Surely for your lifeblood I will reckon I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Alright, that's after uh, Noah and his family are brought forth from the flood, right? So with that, what basis does God give for capital punishment in this passage? Like, why is it, why is it uh, a good thing? Yeah. Why is it a good thing to have capital punishment for murder of, of another person? To be murdering somebody else. 
Yeah, what's what's the reasoning and the rationale that God gives? Okay. To determine. God saw it well, as a contempt against him. That's when right. A man kills another man. Well, kills another right. Man. Someone made in the image of God. Right. Yeah. And, and because that person that was killed was made in the image of God, so God saw that that was whatever you do unto him, contempt you do unto him. him. Yes. Right. So yeah. 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 That's that's exactly right. So that's the right. I mean, it is a deterrent for sure. But but the reasoning behind the need for the capital punishment is that God created man in His likeness, right? And to murder another person is an affront to God as their creator, right? Uh, so God grants the authority to exercise capital punishment. Now, if we lived in a place that abolished it, I mean, that's just the place we live in, and that's where and that's and we're not going to say that it's that we live in an unjust place necessarily just because of that thing. But we will say, look, you got a lot of uh, problems here with people murdering people and God gives a remedy for that, right? That is a deterrent. People will say, well, the statistics don't bear out, but it doesn't matter. I don't, I'm not going to let statistics tell me that God is wrong on capital punishment, right? I mean, he has a point in saying these things. I mean, he is God after all. <laughs> he has a reason for these things. So um, that's the basis, that man is made in the image of God and to create an, and to kill another man is to find God in contempt, right? So with that, fourth, we are subject to, uh, we are to be subject or obedient to governing authorities, including the payment of our taxes, Human authority, human authority, though, never trumps God who gives such authority. Acts 5.29 guides us in those situations where obedience to government conflicts with our obedience to God. We must obey God rather than men, right? So, like, if your government says, well, you can give to your church that preaches against homosexuality, but every time you give to that church that preaches homosexuality, we are going to, you know... Tax you. We're going to tax you. We're going to require you pay a penalty so that it deters you from giving money to your church. And you say, I'm going to obey God rather than men. Whatever you punish me with, I will take it because my church needs to be supported. Well, right? You do it underneath the table. Yeah, you do it in some way that's... yeah. And that's, and I, I think on some level, people might say, well, that's not right. I'd say, yeah, but what do you do with, you know, it's one of those things like that's lying. That's deceitfulness. And you just go, when it comes to an unjust government, you do what's right, regardless of what, you know, the government thinks. I mean, because otherwise there was... Um, uh, the two midwives in Egypt who didn't kill the Hebrew children, right? And they lied to Pharaoh about it. Uh, what do you do also with, you know, Nazi Germany? If you have, you know, Jews hiding out in your attic and the Jew and the Nazis come and say, do you have Jews? And you say, oh, you know what? I'm not supposed to lie to you. Yeah, they're up in my attic. Give me a break, right? When it's an unjust authority, when it's an unjust authority acting in a way that is evil, you have every right to uh, you. You have every right for the sake of the good of another person, 
and for the and for the sake of keeping them alive, deceive that unjust authority, right? That's one example. People might quibble with that with me, and that's just fine. Um, we can have this discussion. Um, but yeah, so we are to obey God rather than men. So in view of these passages, discuss specific uh, discuss specific instances when Christians should disobey governmental authorities. You know, in Russia today, when they're trying to draft people to go shoot the Ukrainians, mm -hmm. and they're getting a lot of pushback from these young men who don't feel like Russia should be there in the first place, uh -huh. then uh, still they have to obey the authority because authority snatches them up physically. Yeah. Uh, but then they could go to Ukraine and surrender. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, as far as, as far as Christians and the church go, um, what can y'all think of some, even some most recent incidents of how a church or how, how Christians should disobey governmental authorities? During COVID, some some places said you couldn't congregate, you know, meet for service, or whatever. And yeah, you know, I know we did, and I know at the time that we were meeting, there were still churches up north that couldn't. We didn't meet. We had church online. Yeah. In North Carolina. Yeah. Because it was a big church. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about a lot of people. Yeah. Well, the more that I think about this, the more distance we get from that time. Because there was a time where there was enough that was unknown that things were warranted for saying, well, let's out of, out of caution and for the sake of our neighbor, let's let's not meet. Because we trusted the governmental authorities and saying that they knew what was going on, that if you just stop meeting for two weeks, then we can see if this will happen, if it will flatten the curve or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of it, it matters what you do in response to that when you say, well, that worked great. Or, well, that didn't work. Now we're going to go back to seeing what else we can do. And I think that it was, uh, I, and, and like you said, like there were churches up north that we're in lockdown and all stuff like that for a long, long time. And it's like, what do you do? Do you disobey? Do you run the risk? I mean, there's that what pastor up in, uh, up in Canada who um, I think he was Polish and he, he was having congregants come and they weren't worried about the numbers and they had the health services and authorities come and knock on their door and like they publicly humiliated him. They, they arrested him on the highway and hogtied him and carried him, carried him into the car and all stuff like that. I mean, it's Canada, right? And here in America, I mean, you had what, uh, John MacArthur out in California um, having full services and getting threatened by the governmental authorities for that. So, but I don't think he was wrong. Nope. I don't think he was wrong. I think anybody who wants to congregate in that sense they go at their own risk, right? Exactly right. They go at their own risk. And um, knowing what we know now, I mean, there were some that would say, you know, well, that's not persecution. 
But the more I get away from it, and the more I get outside of it, I think, yeah, I think that was persecution against Christian churches, Be, and and we we for the we by and large just kind of capitulated um, and complied when we had every right to say after maybe that two weeks, we had every right to say, uh, I don't really trust your your stance on this, and I don't think it's right for you to tell. I don't, I don't think it's right for the state to tell the church what it should be doing, right? So if it were to happen again, you know, I, I, what we did, I think, was, was, was a reasonable response. And, when we, and, and we shut down for a couple weeks, but then as soon as we could, we got back to it. We had modified protocols in how we gathered. And, um, you know, because we were still learning about what all this was and we're trying to keep people safe, but still have church, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like there should be some freedom in these things. But at the same time, let's let's uh, let's admit that. Well, next time this happens, if it ever happens again, we hopefully will be wiser to these things. And if they say, "Well, okay, we're going to go back because now you can't have more than ten people," I think I'm going to probably take a stronger stance stance and say, um, "Anybody, we're going to be open on Sunday, and if we happen to have more than ten people, we have to have more than ten people." <laughs> I mean, it's like. I'm sorry. I'm 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 not I'm not really gonna let the the governing authorities uh, keep us from having word and sacrament because um, that's just unjust. It's unjust. Uh, we should obey God rather than men. Anyways, it's your own personal decision too. Yeah, yeah. We should be free to do these things. I hope it never happens again. I hope it doesn't happen again either. You know, so I, I really hope that we don't have to worry about it anymore. So, but that's just one example I can see. All right, let's 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 keep going though. So we've talked a lot about governing authorities. Um, I think within the right light, we shouldn't just do whatever the government tells us to do, uh, but we should weigh it against what is actually good, right? So now we're looking at clothed with Christ, uh, like Romans twelve nine through twenty one, chapter thirteen. Verses 8 through 14 describes the sacrificial life to which God calls believers. Although Paul demonstrated earlier that you Christians are not, are, are not under law but under grace, he does not hesitate to proclaim the law to them. He specifically tells the Romans what to do with their lives. Right. So how does Paul summarize the law in chapter 13 verses 8 through 10? Uh, how does this description of the law contrast with Paul's um, descriptions in like uh, chapter 7 verses 7 through 11. So how does Paul summarize the law in chapter 13 verses 8 through 10? Basically the Lord's Prayer. How, how, how is it the Lord's Prayer? Uh, do not commit adultery. Do not well, do the this. Ten Commandments. Yeah. I mean, ten, well, yeah, the Ten Commandments. Oh, yeah, I gotcha. Okay. So um, chapter 13... Verses 8 through 10. Yeah, oh, oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all um, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a... Neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
That's why I like to have that little game with people, you know, m- maybe when they don't know the game, when you say, what does this sound like? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound like law or gospel? That's the law, right? Love is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, love uh, <clears throat> is what the law is really all about, right? Um, and uh, earlier, Paul focused on the accusatory and condemnatory actions of the law against those who disobeyed it, right? That's, that's the description of the law as a fulfillment of, you know, love is the fulfillment of law. He contrasts that with the earlier descriptions in chapter 7, right? Um, that we often are unloving, so the law condemns us, right? Because we're either selfish or we're prideful or hateful or whatever, right? Um, any thoughts on that? Questions? No? Okay, so uh, as you read chapter 13, 11 through 14, picture a Roman centurion walking through a military encampment before sunrise, rousing his men. How does this, uh, how does this picture reflect the sacrificial life to which the apostle calls you as a believer? So thir- chapter 13, verses 11 through 14 says, And do this, knowing the time that now... Uh, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed the night is far spent the day is at hand therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and 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 let us put on the armor of light let us walk properly as in the day not in revelry and drunkenness not in lewdness and lust not in strife and not <clears throat> not in strife and and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So um, how does the imagery of the Roman centurion walking through the encampment before sunrise, rousing his men, uh, reflect the life of a believer? What do y'all think? He's devoting his life to his country instead mm-hmm. of thinking about himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He's devoting the soldier who's being roused for service <clears throat> is doing his duty, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and his country is, I, for us, the kingdom of God. Yeah. So Paul calls us, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called uh, sober and well-equipped to battle the forces of evil, right? Uh, We talked about with grace upon grace, that's a defensive battle, right? Um, The battle lines, we are supposed to hold the line. We're not supposed to go out and seek evil. It's going to find us, right? So we, we, we fight a defensive battle against... Uh, the spiritual forces of evil. Um, and every soldier soldier knows that such a battle could make him a sacrifice for his cause, right? Um, we could, in the face of fighting against the spiritual forces of Satan, could be severely wounded 
in that fight, right? Uh, and called upon to sacrifice in some way. Yeah? Any thoughts on that? Kind of a different way of thinking about it, right? Um, makes, makes the Christian life, I mean, we are the Christian, we are the church, uh, as, as we say, we are a part of the church, church, uh, man, church militant, right? We get up and we are good, we are Christian soldiers. Uh, we are in a battlefield. Um, some days are calmer than others, but um, we're always getting sniped at by the enemy, or he's trying to get behind our lines and sabotage us, right? So we have to, so we have to be alert and put on Christ, um, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that actually answers the next question, I think. Sorry. Yep. What armor covers these troops? What comfort does the imagery uh, give to you? So Christ is our armor and covers us in the battle. Uh, and uh, on the cross, Jesus took the point of the spear, right? Jesus took the point of the spear and the blows of the enemy to protect us. He is our covering. You know, he clothes us in his blood. He clothes us in his righteousness so that we would be protected from the fiery darts of, of, of the enemy. Yeah? Any thoughts on that? A lot of stuff here, huh? A lot of stuff to think about. I'll give you all a second to offer any thoughts on that one. Take a little swig of water here. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end. I mean, I know we kind of rushed through these things, but we've talked about this in other, other instances elsewhere. I think um, we talked a lot about some good stuff today. Um, any, any closing thoughts or comments about any of this? another place in the Bible where they talk about putting on the full armor of God. Mm -hmm. It's in Ephesians. Ephesians. Mm -hmm. Ephesians, I want to say six. Breastplate of righteousness. righteousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll find it. Yeah, Ephesians six verses ten uh, through twenty. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, words to remember. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in the view in view of God's in view of God's God's mercy, to offer your bodies as as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Romans twelve verse one. For next time, uh, the strong and the weak, we will, uh, you know, we're, all, we're getting to the end here. You know, we only got two more uh, sessions. Uh, so for next time, the second to last session for us, the strong and the weak, read chapter 14, Romans 14, verse 1, through Romans 15, verse 33.
I believe that's both 15, 14 and 15 altogether, right? Uh, yes, all of 14 and 15. With that, let's go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. By the way,